Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. All right, so we're going to be launching into a new series today. We're calling Reset, and we're really excited about this. Um, I began to think about this week of all the different things that we reset in our lives, and I was trying to come up with normal adult examples of things we reset, like circuit breakers and different electronic devices for work and whatever else, and for the life of me, the only thing I could think of about what to reset was my original Nintendo. Where's my 80s kids at? Yeah, let's go. All right. This is all I can think about. And the only thing my adult brain could think about, I'm still a child trapped in a man's body apparently, is this little button right here on the Nintendo. We had to hit reset because the game would freeze. It would get overheated. It wouldn't start working right. And when you would have to reset it, if that button didn't work out, you'd open it up, hit the game, pull it out of the toaster. You know what I mean? And then what would you do? What would you do? That's right. You would blow on it and put it back in. And that's how you reset Nintendo back in the 80s. Yeah, crazy, right? Oh, man, how far have things come? How far have things come? So uh, what I'm here to tell you today is that life sometimes needs a reset too. Now, not like how we do Nintendo, not necessarily like that. But sometimes in life, things get overheated. Things get too busy. Things get stressed. There's some things just don't work right. And so sometimes what you need is you need to do a reset. Now, we do this in our culture at normal times throughout the year. We do this in January. A lot of people reset their lives with goals, their health and fitness goals, their financial goals, relational goals, and we kind of recalibrate for the coming year. I think we actually do this best and most in the summer, especially if you have kids who are in school and break for the summer. If you are are a parent or if you've raised kids or maybe you got grandkids, um, you think about how summertime with the breaks, you get breaks from school, from extracurricular activities, from sports, from PTO stuff and everything else. And just about every single May, if your young parent almost kills you. Anybody else barely survive May? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So people use the summer to reset their lives and think about what they're going to be committed to in the fall and the spring in the coming year. Um, they do this and we do this really a lot of ways, but we do also through finding rest. And we look for ways to find a period of rest, a pocket of rest that will help bring a reset to us. We do this through like summer vacation. So a lot of people, I imagine if you're streaming online right now, you might be gone on vacation right now. That's great. Uh, I'm going to be going on vacation here in a little bit. Anybody got vacation planned here in a little bit? Several, okay, several hands, several hands, okay. Um, For me and my family... Um, I don't have a choice in this. I kind of married into it. My wife has been going every single year she's been alive. So since she was an infant, her family has gone every single year to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. They rent a house. You know what I'm talking about. They rent a house, and we do nothing all week long but eat and play on the beach, and that's it. That's it. And I was told, marrying into this family, that if there is one year where I missed and did not bring Leah, I would come home and the locks would be changed at my house. (laughs) 
So I have plans, you have plans, people online have plans, you might be doing those plans right now. And so we go on vacations to help bring rest to us, to help reset some things. Now what I'm here to tell you today is that God is revealed in the Bible as the God of rest, because he's the God of restoration. All the way from beginning to end, think of it, even on the seventh day, God rested from his works and said it was good. God is the God of rest and restoration. What he offers to people, what he offers in Jesus is a type of rest that will bring restoration to every single part of your life. But it's better than any vacation that you would take. It's not an escape. It's a lifestyle that's offered to people who want to apprentice in the way of Jesus and pattern their lives after him. So we're in the series called Reset, and we're talking about how God uses rest to reset the speed of your life. So if you got hurry sickness, if you are burnt out from life going too fast, or you are overwhelmed and tired and exhausted, Jesus has a remedy for you through the rest of God. Now, the four practices we're going to talk about over the four weeks of June, I'm just going to give you a preview of what this whole series is going to look like. This is June. Today, we're going to talk about the practice of simplicity, and more on that in just a few minutes. Next week, we're going to talk about the discipline of slowing, and this is where we deliberately slow our minds and slow our bodies, and that eventually work its way into slowing our souls. The week after that, we're going to talk about surrender, and learning how to give up control to benevolent God. And the following week, we're going to talk about the practice of Sabbath and what that means of how to cease from doing work and trusting the work of God in your life, that God can maybe do more with my six days than I can do with seven. So now, what's interesting about these four things is not four random shots in the dark of things you should try to do to make your life better. We see in Scripture that these are four routine regular, consistent practices of Jesus and in his life, that when he did these things in a very practical way and he invites his followers to step into them, that they would learn to find rest for their souls. So we're going to try to learn to walk the way that Jesus did. Now what's interesting is that these are four weeks we're going to be talking about and through these four disciplines we're going to explore in the next several weeks, we're only going to look at one passage of scripture in the month of June, and we're just going to take it verse by verse over these four weeks. We're going to deep dive on it. In fact, it's the most famous chapter in the entire Bible. It's actually Psalm 23. Now, almost everybody knows this. Even if you're an irreligious or not spiritual person, you're exploring church or faith for the first time, you have heard of the contents of Psalm 23. It's the most quoted piece of scripture in all of our culture. It shows up in movies. It shows up in literature. It shows up in music. It even shows up, like think about this, all the way from Coolio and Gangster's Paradise <laughs> to Kanye West and Jesus Walks. Psalm 23 shows up in all of that, okay? Now, think about this with me. If you're a 90s kid, Gangster's Paradise was released 26 years ago. (laughs) Shoot, I'm getting old. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about Psalm 23. It's the most famous passage in all of the Bible. But if we learn not only what Psalm 23 says, but learn to pray it and then believe it, practice it, oh man, that's going to help reset your life 
with the rest of God from the speed of life. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it now or maybe your COH app. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put it on the screen. I'm going to invite everybody to stand if you're able. And we're going to look at Psalm 23 together. And so it's only six verses, okay? Our challenge to all of Community of Hope across the month of June is to see if you can memorize Psalm 23. Go ahead and give it a shot. And let me tell you, I know all y'all could sing every lyric to the country radio station in town. And if you can know every lyric to every song in the radio, you can learn six verses in Psalm 23 in a month. Amen? Amen. All right. So now that I've appropriately shamed everybody, let's read the Bible. <laughs> all right. So um, let's read this out loud all together. Ready? Go. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. And everybody said, thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, so Psalm 23 was written 3,000 years ago. And this is still so relevant in our culture and in our daily lives. Oftentimes when uh, I read this at weddings, Pastor Dale and I will talk about this often where if we're called into a bedside at a hospital or to do a funeral for somebody, whether they were a church person or not a church person, most people want Psalm 23 read to them or at their funeral. Uh, this is the most well-known chapter in all the Bible, which is amazing. It's still 3,000 years later. It's still Relevant. That shows to me that there's something special about the Bible. It's not just some man-made document, but God breathed into the words of this book. Um, it was written by King David. Now, I believe that a lot of the inspiration for Psalm 23 has come about not when David was king of Israel, and not when David was an outlaw on the run from King Saul, and even before King David was a war hero and a champion after defeating the giant Goliath. David, before all of that, when he was a nobody, David was a shepherd. And he was a shepherd boy for his father's sheep and his flock outside of Bethlehem. And this unbelievable, beautiful imagery in this. Most of Psalm 23 is a metaphor about shepherding. Then it switches halfway through about God as host. Today we're going to talk about the shepherd part. Now what's fascinating about this is David, in expressing all these things about God, the, the psalm is not about sheep and it's not about shepherds. It's a psalm that's expressing trust and confidence in the goodness of God. And that when God is profoundly good and when you understand that to the depths of your heart, how does that come out when you express it in your life? And how do you make choices about how you live when you thoroughly understand and believe that God is good and he's good towards you? 
So let's explore this here. We're only going to look at one verse today. We're just going to dive deep right in on this. Psalm 23.1. So the first part of this is, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, we talked about how David probably wrote this while he was a shepherd boy. And I imagine that when he was taking care of his father's sheep and he was out in the wilderness and spending lots of time alone, just him and the flock and nobody else, I imagine that sometimes the whisper of the Holy Spirit would come to him. And as he was taking care of his father's sheep, God would talk to him and say, hey, David, this is just like me. The way you're caring for these sheep is how I care for you. And so it made its way into David's heart and made its way into this prayer that showed up in Psalm 23. Now, what we need to do is a little bit of contextualization here is we don't have shepherds around here a lot. Like nobody here has the occupation shepherd. In America, we got cowboys. We got that. We got many shepherds. Maybe the Loxahatchee international version of the Bible is the Lord is my cowboy. You know, <laughs> maybe. But for just for the sake of time <laughs> and me not being a complete moron right now, um, uh, shepherds were primarily responsible for three things with taking care of sheep. They protected the sheep. They provided for them, and they guided them. That was their job. They protected, provided, guided. And so what David is saying here is that God is really good at that. He's a wonderful provider, a wonderful protector, and a wonderful guide. Now, this is true from scriptures all the way in Genesis through Revelation, that God is revealed as a shepherd. In fact, Jesus self-identified himself as, I am the good shepherd. He's really good at this. And what's interesting here is that David does not go on and say the Lord is a shepherd or that the Lord is a really good shepherd. But it's interesting that when you believe this about God, it has to make an impact on you in your life. And David's saying the Lord is my shepherd. When this impacts you, see, you get to choose who gets to be your shepherd. You can be the own guide in your life, which let me ask you, how's that going? Or you could choose somebody who's wiser than you, who knows you best and loves you most and has your best interest in heart and has wonderful plans for your life. And when you choose to make the Lord is my shepherd, here's the most interesting part that comes with the second half of the verse that we're going to camp out in today. I lack nothing. Wow. This is one of the most profound three-word prayers in the entire Bible. It's like David is saying here, because the Lord is such a good shepherd, I have everything I need. I lack nothing. Can we be real? I'm going to be anyway. How many of you can honestly say that? I lack nothing. I don't know about you. I can think of some things that I lack. I could think of some things that I would really like. They'll be really nice to have, God. And so I think people could over-spiritualize and go, I lack nothing, but they actually, you know, in your heart of hearts, do you actually really believe that? This is really to believe um, as Americans. Because whether you were born in this country or then you migrated to this country, um, you have been swimming in the waters most of your life that has been telling you and shoving down your throat that you lack things. And that your life would be happier if you bought them. 
Did you know the average American sees anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 ads every single day? Yeah, mainly because of social media. That's double the number of ads even since 2007. Just since 2007, the average American sees double the amount of ads that they used to back then. The average American sees five times as many ads as they used to in the 1970s now. We are literally swimming in waters that tell us what we lack, what we don't have, and how what we have isn't enough. Because our economy is built that way. And I'm not you know, anti-America and I'm, I'm not any of that stuff. It's just the reality of where we live. We are trained our whole lives to think we lack something. Which makes it more profound here when David is saying, I have everything I need. In fact, think about this. This is not David being pie in the sky, not having any issues. We know from scripture, David had problems. David had challenges. David had enemies. Heck, even in the psalm itself, David had dark valleys that felt like death. He had problems he had to face, and he was sitting at a table surrounded by his enemies. And still, at the very beginning of the psalm, he says, I have everything I need. I lack nothing. This is profound if we learn to get this deep in our heart and to live out of this space of those three words. I think this is one of the best examples of Christian simplicity in the entire Bible. This is what I want to talk to us about today. This practice, this discipline, this lifestyle component of Jesus. Simplicity. Now, um, let's just clarify some terms here. Um, This term is used for a lot of different things, and I'm a fan of almost all of it. But to understand what we're talking about today, let's say what we're not talking about. When I say we're going to talk about simplicity today, I don't mean that we're talking about design and architecture. Look at this beautiful home. Modern, simple. I mean, I love this. My wife, Leah, would hate this. I would love to live there. Um, but I choose to go where she goes. So, (laughs) happy wife, happy life, you know, right? Yeah. So uh, I don't mean, when talking about simplicity, I don't mean modern design and architecture, and even from a few generations ago, like beautiful Frank Lloyd White or Frank Lloyd Wright architecture, uh, beautiful stuff. I don't mean any of that. I don't mean simplistic, modern, interior design, graph design, architecture. I don't mean any of that. Awesome, cool, not what we're talking about. I also don't mean strategy and focus in business. Like Steve Jobs was notorious for this at Apple. One of his favorite values that he talked about at Apple was the beautiful sophistication of simplicity. Try to say that three times as fast. (laughs) He talked about the simplicity, uh, he talked about simplicity all the time. In fact, when he was brought back to Apple, famously as his second run as CEO, he came into the company and they, he took them from offering 60 products to four. He cut all of those all the way down just to four things where he said, we are going to be excellent at a few things instead of mediocre at a lot of things. And it saved Apple and made them one of, if not the most valuable company in the world to this day. Incredible leadership. Great. That's not what we're talking about today either. We're also not talking about how you organize your home. How many of you know who this is? 
This is Marie Kondo with the Spark Living Movement or Spark Joy, Spark Joy book that she wrote and her show on Netflix, Tidying Up. And her whole philosophy is around minimalism and simplicity with how you organize your house. Again, my wife binged watched this whole show and did Spark Joy dresser drawers for all of our kids until they ruined it every single time. She's like, ah, I just give up. And this is good, but it's way deeper than how you organize your dresser drawers. It's way deeper than that. So what is the practice of Christian simplicity? Well, I read everything I could get my hands on about it this week. And the irony is every theologian I read about simplicity had insanely complex definitions of simplicity. I'm like, this doesn't seem right here. This shouldn't take five pages. So I did a lot of reading and had done a lot of resources and with the help of a couple of great thinkers online with blogs actually then some core theologians, I have a three-word definition for what is the practice of Christian simplicity. This is going to change your life. Your eternity is going to be impacted. This is going to reset your life. Get ready for this. Simplicity is owning fewer possessions. <laughs> That's it. Let's close in prayer. Dale, will you come do communion? <laughs> so we live in Palm Beach County, and I was a little nervous to be like, yeah, I'm going to tell people to own fewer stuff. Really? Like, really? Is owning fewer things going to reset the pace of my life and bring rest to my soul and change everything? I'll experience more of the presence of God, and I'll be a happier person if I just get rid of stuff? Yeah, yeah, it will. Let me explain. Last week, Dale talked about how um, he's a baseball guy. I'm not, um, and it's mainly because every sports team I was on as a kid, I was the one kid on every team I was ever on that lost every game every season. So it doesn't necessarily foster love for like traditional sports. Um, so I loved martial arts. And I've been doing martial arts my whole life. You can come to community. You know I love martial arts and, and all that. Um, well, I had a really cool thing that happened uh, just a couple weeks ago where uh, my son Cade and I, he goes to martial arts too. We both earned black belts at the dojo that we go to. And I was in the adult class and they let Cade join in as just a cool special thing. And so here's a picture of me and Cade here. Look at that. And so uh, we, we actually, this is the very first time, been waiting for this day his whole life. We got to spar each other for the very first time. And let me tell you, this kid was fearless. He was out for blood. He was trying to knock his old dad out. And so I did the good and responsible thing that any loving father would do. And I kicked him in the face twice. It was awesome. <laughs> this is what Pastor Trevor does in his off time. I beat children for my hobby. Great, okay. No, it was really, it was fun. It was fun. Now, the reason I bring up martial arts is that um, you actually have to, in martial arts, train both sides of your body. You have to be proficient with your right hand with striking and your right leg with kicking. And same thing with your left. You got to be a good striker with your left um, and a good kicker with your left. And our dojo focuses a lot on functional martial arts that, great, you don't just do a kata and a dance, be 
functionally good at striking with both sides of your body. And one of the most difficult things to do is what's called a sidekick. Um, the average person, if you just tell them, go do a sidekick, they have no idea how to do it, and they would never do it because it's not intuitive. Um, it's kind of more of a direct kick where instead of coming from the sides, you go straight at somebody. And if you do it right with the perfect technique, it will, like, cut somebody in half. It's awesome. <laughs> I, I know because I bruised both my ribs last year. Listen, I know. I'm the, I'm the guy who put the fist in pacifist in our church, okay? So just, just whatever. All right, so um, anyway, with a sidekick, um, I've been working on getting my left better. As I'm getting older, it's a little bit harder to, you know, to be as strong with that. So I'm trying to work on my technique with my left because I'm right-handed. And I've been trying. I'm not going to do the full kick because I'll split my pants and that'll be, you know... <laughs> So I've been trying to work on my, my technique with my psychic. And I had a big breakthrough the other day. And it wasn't on my kicking leg. It was on my base leg. In fact, my base foot. And my left sidekick got better when my base foot, I turned it an extra 45 degrees. And my foot that I'm standing on, going from here to here, fixed my left sidekick. Where I was hitting with precision and power Every single shot I was taking, like, oh my gosh, this is a major breakthrough. Itty bitty little change yielded a lot of power. This is true simplicity. It's an itty bitty change that's going to yield a lot of power in your lives. And this is big for God. God talks about this all throughout scriptures. He has a lot to say about possessions and finances all over the word. There's literally 2,350 verses on possessions and finances in the Bible. And there's only 500 on prayer, but 2,350 on possessions and finances. Here's just two. Luke 12, Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he says in Mark, The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in, and they choke the word, which means the work that God is trying to do in your life. Wealth and possessions are deceitful, and they'll come in and try to choke out, and they're in opposition often to the deep things God wants to do in your life. A lot of churches you will find on the internet and on Twitter and on YouTube and on Instagram preach something called the prosperity gospel, which says Jesus wants to make you rich and famous. What I read here makes me feel like Jesus is trying to save me from being rich and famous. And we need to hear this. When you practice simplicity, you're getting free from materialism, free from the passion to possess more, free from insatiable greed and free to live for what matters most. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said this here in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things be given to you as well. If you learn to practice Christian simplicity, to have fewer things, to not chase after these things, to not try to go after all these possessions. It will help not only make your life less busy, because not only, ha ha, you'll spend less time shopping, less time cleaning, 
less time organizing. But you'll be able to focus on what matters most. You'll be able to give your life to what matters most. And if you start here with just a drop in the water with your stuff and what you own, it will ripple out into your calendar, into your work, into your family, into your church. Small change that will lead to huge power in your life to live the way that Jesus did. It will reset your life. All right, so how do you do this? Real quick, three things. First, focus on what you already have. Just focus on what you already have. Um, uh, how do I say this? Super quick Cliff Notes version of this. Leah and I had a really tight season. You ever go through a season where every bill in the world comes to your house and it never stops? That was us. God was involuntarily teaching us how to practice simplicity this past year. And so we had to really tighten our belts and it taught us to focus on what we already had. And you know what? Every time I thought I needed something, I needed to go to the store for it. Turned out I already had most of it. Turns out God is a good shepherd. I lack nothing. Focus in on what you already have. Two, get rid of what you don't need. And this is where, you know, go through your stuff. Sell stuff. Give away stuff. Throw out stuff. Pick a room at a time. Start decluttering your life. At the exact same time when we had to tighten our belt around our budget because we had, you know, the never-ending bill cycle of root canals and home repairs and all this other crazy stuff we had come in, uh, we started to simplify our life. You ever, um, we walked into our closet one night because we thought we heard a noise and we thought maybe some, something fell off our shelf. Can I show you what we found instead? This is what we found instead. Yeah, right? Uh, we, we bought our house four years ago. It was a fixer-upper. And I said, whoever owned it before us had the Uncle Cletus repair company come and do stuff. None of this was in studs in the wall. All of it was just in drywall anchors. And we found out four years into owning our house. And so because we had to tighten up, we didn't have money to go buy a whole new closet system. And so we just started getting rid of the stuff that we didn't need. And you know what? We started spending less and started getting rid of more. After a while, at first I was like, why is God allowing this to happen to me? And then I went, oh no, God is making me more like Jesus. <laughs> and then after a while, and this is actually kind of better. I feel freer. And I'm not as frantic, and life is slowing down. And last thing. So focus on what you already have. Get rid of what you don't need. Last thing, and ask God for what you do need. It's not owning no possessions. Simplicity is owning fewer possessions. It's not poverty. And sometimes you're going to need stuff. And you need to go to your good, loving father and say, Father, we, we, we have this need, Jehovah Jireh, like we just sang. You are enough. And we're content, but would you provide? And he will. I'll tell the story and then we're going to close. My daughter, Tessa, said to me last night when I was talking to her about all this, she said, Dad, do you remember that day when we asked for Rita's earlier this spring? 
at my kids' elementary school, Rita's Italian ice comes and brings, you know, ice cream and Italian ice to the kids every other Friday. And every time my kids ask for Rita's money, we're like, no, 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 no. But then especially when we had to tighten our budget pretty tight, because like, dad, can we have Rita's money? And Lee and I looked at him and said, we never carry cash on us. What? One, we never carry cash. And two, no, we don't have budget for that. <laughs> no. Oh, man. And it was fine. That was it. And then I felt the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit in the back of my head. I went, hey, Trevor, go look in your wallet. Huh. Hmm. I opened up my wallet, and I don't remember how it got there, but in my wallet was six $1 bills, enough for both of them to get Rita's that day. Three for Cade, three for Tessa, exactly it. I called him and said, hey, guys, let me show you what God reminded me was in my wallet today. I busted out, and they saw it. I went, God is a good shepherd. You lack nothing. Ask him for what you need. And he's so good, he'll not only give you what you need, but sometimes he'll give you what you want to. And sometimes God says yes to ice cream. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. What a wonderful shepherd you are. Teach us to trust you. Teach us, Lord, to cut the ties of our hearts off possessions and stuff and things and live for greater things. Help, Lord, help us, help us to realize what we already have, to let go of what we don't need, and to ask you for what we do need. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen.